<laughs> Woo! Our God is good. My name is Wes Holmes, one of the pastors here. It's truly a delight to see all your faces this morning as we're gathered here together in one service. And um, it's my privilege to be leading us as we consider our passage in Colossians this morning. We're continuing through the book of Colossians. And uh, we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. So go ahead and open up there. And as you do... I just want to remind us, last week we heard about how God transfers us from the domain of darkness into the glorious kingdom of his Son, uh, all through faith in Christ. He transplants us from the soil of sin and death and plants us in the fertile ground of the gospel. This morning we look to what many have believed to be an ancient hymn or a Christian creed. Uh, of the early church, which Paul records here in Colossians 1. This passage really does paint an exalted picture of Jesus. So let's give ear uh, to God's word, Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we pray that as we consider this short text together, that it would truly be the song of our hearts as we meditate on the greatness of our Savior here this morning. Be present among us, O Lord, by the power of your Spirit. Impress these truths upon our hearts and lives, that indeed we may shout your praise together. O Lord our God, seated on your throne, let us adore you in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 3rd, 1783, Great Britain formally acknowledged the independence of the United States with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, bringing the prolonged eight years of war to an end. At the moment of this monumental victory, General Washington was at the peak of his power, a time at which most conquering generals in past human history would have appointed themselves as dictators. When the war ended, King George III asked his envoys about Washington's activities. He was told Washington retired from public life back at his home of Mount Vernon. George III couldn't believe it. He leaned back in his chair and said, if this be true, then George Washington must be the greatest man in the world. <laughs> now this story from the earliest days of American history resounds with us even today because we recognize that the greatness of a man who cared so well for his army, who 
led with courage and valor, and then humbly stepped away from his position of prominence is an amazing thing. And later, George Washington only reluctantly to accept the call to the presidency, but he did absolutely no campaigning for it. Why was George III so amazed at Washington's behavior? Why do we admire this kind of leadership even today? Because it's rare. It's rare to see this, and we all also recognize that there's something inherently beautiful about a highly honored leader humbly serving the interests of the people rather than his own. Friends, you see, Jesus' life is the true picture of this kind of beauty. Though highly exalted, he became the lowest of the low. And this morning we'll consider how Colossians 1 reveals this uh, through three main points. First, incarnation. Second, reconciliation. And third, glorification. (laughs) You got all the Asians there. Incarnation, reconciliation, glorification. And what I want you to take away from this message is that God shed his blood on the cross to reconcile us to himself, proving that he alone is worthy of all our praise. God shed his blood on the cross to reconcile us to himself, to prove that he alone is worthy of all our praise. But that does beg the question in our first point, incarnation, how can God shed blood? Well, the Bible teaches us that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. In fact, this passage tells us that God is the eternal creator of all that exists. Verse 15, the son, or he, following from the previous passage, the son, the kingdom of the son whom he loves, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does this mean? To say that he is the image of God means that he is the very radiance of God's being and glory. Image is also language of sonship. When the first man, Adam, fathered Seth, it is written that Seth was after his image. And so the verse goes on to say that this image of God, this son of God, is also the firstborn. Interesting. Well, to understand this, we need to understand that the firstborn is the one who in ancient Jewish culture is the inheritor. He is the owner of all that his father has. And so in this case, the son is the inheritor, the owner of all creation. And yet this firstborn is not a created being. As we see very clearly in verse 17 where it tells us that he is before all things. There was never a time when this son was not. He is eternal. Never had a beginning and will never have an end. And as such, anything that exists, exists because he created it. He made it out of nothing. All things we read in verse 16 are created by him, through him, and for him. He is the source, the instrument, and the purpose of all that exists in the entire universe. Everything was made for his glory. 
consider this for a moment. Consider the power and the majesty of who our God is. We also see in this passage that he is the sovereign ruler over everything that he has made. Verse 16 goes on to tell us that he is the source and the, and the supreme one over all authorities, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or, or invisible. There is no authority but that which is delegated by God the Son, who himself is the ruler of all men and angels. And he's a good king. And as such, he is the providential sustainer of his creation. Verse 17, in him, all things hold together. The book of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 3 tells us the same thing, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, all that exists has its very being because the sovereign Lord of the universe is actively, actively upholding it by his divine power and authority. And if you're not yet amazed, what's truly amazing is this. This hymn is about Jesus. The same eternal creator, God, sustainer, and sovereign creator of the universe is also revealed to us as a faithful servant. Let the shock of this sink in. <laughs> he is called the firstborn from the dead in verse 18. Kind of an odd phrase. What does it mean? Well, we already established that the firstborn is the heir, the inheritor. So here, Jesus, the Son of God, is the heir of all that is, who humbly came to bring life to the dead. He came to bring life to the dead as the true image of God. You see, Jesus is not only the image of God by his very nature from all eternity, but the Apostle Paul here in Colossians is also saying that the Son of God became a man. Incarnation. To become man, to take on flesh. The image of God harkens back to the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden. You see, Adam was created after the image of God. He was made to reflect his character and to fulfill all the righteousness that God had commanded of him. But sadly, we know how that ended. Adam failed, and the world was plunged into sin and misery and death. But praise the Lord, that wasn't the end of the story. You see, the Son of God now has come in a human nature so that after facing a cursed death, he could bring many to follow him from death into life and life eternal by his resurrection from the grave. How can God bleed? By willingly becoming a man and dying on behalf of his people. So that brings us now to our second point, reconciliation. How does reconciliation come into play in this passage? Well, we actually see it in verse 18, where Christ is called the head of the body, the church. 
Now, maybe that doesn't immediately sound like a reconciling thing, but it's actually all about reconciliation. So let's unpack just what that reconciliation looks like. You see, when the person is the head of something, he's in charge. Top dog. But that also means that the head is the representative of the body, all who are part of the organization beneath the head. Now, we already saw that Adam was created to bear the image of God. But as the first created image of God, he was also the head of all humanity, the representative. He represented all of us, you and me. And this did not go well. And the reality that we face every day, every moment, is radically changed by Adam's sin. Because the reality is we have inherited his guilt and corruption. Sin and death has entered the world. And we see it every day. Friends, the bad news of the Christian faith is that all mankind is guilty before God. Our desires are corrupt. Our lives are tarnished by sin. One of the fundamental evils that our sin leads us into is giving our praise and our glory and our allegiance and our trust to created things instead of the glorious creator that this hymn is all about. In fact, if each of us are honest with ourselves, the creature that we most love to praise and glorify and give our allegiance to is ourselves. Let's go back to the story of George Washington for a moment. King George III was so shocked to hear of Washington giving up his position of honor and power for a simple life on his farm. Here's the king, right, thinking, Washington, don't, don't you want the glory? Don't you want the praise and the admiration of your people? Certainly the first man, Adam, wanted for himself the, the right to decide what is good and evil. But in doing so, he was rebelling against God's supreme authority. He was cut off from his creator. And now we all, under Adam's headship, have the natural inclination not to praise our God for his amazing goodness and power, but we desire the praise for ourselves constantly seeking the accolades of others. We need a new head. And that's where the good news comes in. Friends, there is good news because the eternal Son of God took on human flesh to be our new head before God, who even now restores the broken fellowship that we have and brings us into the very presence of our eternal king. In fact, verse 19 tells us that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, in Christ. And so when we come into a relationship with God through Jesus, we are brought into God's presence. Just as the Old Testament people of God were brought into his presence through the tabernacle and later through the temple. 
Jesus is the true temple of God among his people. And he himself said it. He said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Referring to his own death and resurrection in order to reconcile his people to himself. You see, Jesus' death on the cross is the last part of this hymn for a reason. Verse 20 is the culmination where we see God's very presence and his purpose in coming to earth. He came to reconcile to himself, says, all things. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, at the core of the gospel message is the truth that Jesus died. The Son of God died. And not as a martyr, and not as a, a political revolutionary. He died as a substitute for us. He died to face the judgment for all the ways that we have sought to steal his glory, to steal the praise that belongs to him and take it for ourselves. He paid the debt of all of our sin through faith alone so that we could be reconciled to God. And it's not because we're worthy. In fact, the very purpose for this, for this salvation that he came to accomplish was because we are completely unworthy and desperately in need of a Savior. The cross, friends, was a reconciling of accounts between us and God. We all have read in the ledger but Jesus paid it all and even now has credited his perfect merit to us. But it's interesting that the passage says, here is God reconciling all things. So for those whose ledger hasn't been reconciled by the shed blood of Jesus, they still have a debt to God. Those who are rejecting the cross of Christ will have their sins accounted for and the reconciliation of their account will be judgment. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you're here this morning not yet trusting in Christ, know that his love extends even to you. So run to Jesus. Run to him in faith. Know that his reconciliation is free, purchased by his own blood for you. The divine Son of God came to humbly serve those who were his enemies, making them into his own beloved children, all to the praise of his amazing grace. And so our third point, glorification, to the praise of his grace. If there's one conclusion that we can draw from this text together this morning, from this hymn, it's that God alone is worthy of all of our praise. The hymn declares that very truth in verse 18. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Or as other translations say, that in everything, he is preeminent. Friends, what is said about, if, if what is said about him here is true, 
if what we read and what we have understood is true, then who is more deserving, not only of the praise of our lips, but the service of our entire lives? He is the Lord, the creator of all mankind, the faithful savior of all who trust in him. Who else even comes close? If we understand just a tiny portion of his greatness in this hymn, surely the only proper response from us is to glorify him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To give him praise because that's all that we can give him. To love him and to love our neighbor made in his image. So how do we actually seek to do this? What does this look like in real life? How can we seek to live for him who for our sakes died and rose again? Let me, let me suggest three ways. One, we can honor him as individuals by giving him the place of preeminence in our own lives. The way you organize your schedule, the way you spend your money, the time you spend at work, with your family, or in recreation. To put him first. Now that doesn't mean that you need to spend all your time either reading the Bible or praying. <laughs> but it does mean that you seek to have a heart attitude that is directed to the honor of the Lord who loves you throughout the day. And that you make spending time with him a priority. Second, we can honor the Lord as a church by giving ourselves to gathering together regularly, to encouraging one another. In our faith and in our walk with the Lord, we can bear one another's burdens and pray for each other, even being honest about our own difficulties and sins with one another. Ask someone, how are you really doing? and how you can be praying for them. And remember, we don't do this to earn something from God. We're already reconciled. We do it simply because we want to faithfully serve the God who has already faithfully served us. And third, lastly, we can honor God together as we seek to reach out to friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members who don't yet know the grace of Jesus. We can pray that God will be opening their hearts, that he would give us opportunity to show them the love of Christ in tangible ways. Who's on your prayer list? Are you praying for them? Friends, may our lives be so transformed by our reconciled relationship with God that the world around us will see and want to know more. And the amazing thing of all of this is that as we seek to glorify God with our lives, He is even now at work preparing us to share in His eternal glory in a heavenly home. And so to conclude, 
We've seen that God shed his blood on the cross to reconcile us to himself, proving that he alone is worthy of all of our life's praise. And so as you continue to grow in your appreciation and your recognition of the greatness of who your Savior is, may your hope increase. May your faith strengthen and may your love deepen. Brothers and sisters, live for the glory of God, knowing that he lived and died and rose again to share his glory with you. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, teach us to praise. Teach us that to live for your glory is the true purpose for our existence. We were made by you, through you, and for you. And thank you, Lord, that you are pleased to receive our praise as weak and as meager as it can be. Because you love us in Christ. And you are patient and gracious and kind and good. So show us more, O Lord. Show us more of your goodness. More of your grace. That we might capture just a a greater glimpse of who you are and all that you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good for us to recognize the ways that we all have fallen short, especially in light of who our God is perfect in holiness and beauty. And so we have an opportunity now to confess our sins to the Lord. And we'll do it in two ways. First, I'll lead us in a prayer of confession. And then I'll give us some time to silently confess those sins that the Lord brings to your heart and mind.